you're tuning in to Luminal on the Wall. Welcome. I'm your host, Becky, and joining me always is my co-host and beautiful sister, Bevy. In our podcast, we will take a deep dive into the evil side of humanity. We will talk about suspicious deaths, shoddy investigations, and all the gory details in between. But be warned, we will not hesitate to call BS when we hear it, which means you may not always agree with us, but we promise to lay out the evidence so you can come to your own conclusions based on what is presented. Listener's discretion is advised. Hello, Beverly. What is up? Not much. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Your week's been all right? It's been all right, but my car has been acting up. Oh, freaking car. Yeah. I went and got an oil change done. The guy said my brake fluid was basically gone. <gasps> and I got extra brake fluid today, put it in, and it didn't, like, it wasn't very empty. But no. who am I to say? No, it took barely any to fill it up. You know, I was scared driving with no, like hardly any brake fluid. But it turns out it wasn't even that bad. Oh, so something else is just wrong with your car. Yeah, something's messed up. <laughs> I think my back breaks. <laughs> Hopefully that's all. Metal on metal grinding. Never a good sign when you are driving a vehicle. No, I don't think it facilitates stopping at a quick rate. Yeah, and it, I mean... It does the job still. It just sounds awful. Oh, look. Is that Bev? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's Bev. <laughs> Every time something goes wrong with my car, I think of how jealous I am for your Hyundai. <laughs> yeah. Because there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. No, because you've had it for years and it's it runs good. Like, what's the one thing that's been wrong with your car? Uh, I had to get a new battery. Yeah. But Everyone I had it for six years, and I it was the first time I replaced the battery. Yeah, so... Suck on that, Biff. <laughs> Here I am having brakes malfunction. Weird sounds. Yeah. Remember that first sound, and it was just your tire? <laughs> yes. It needed to be tightened. Torqued. <laughs> That's Thank, all it was. So yeah. much worry for just a little bit of torque. Thank God for those guys at Knibby. They just torqued my tires for free. <laughs> they were kind. They were kind to you. Snaps yeah. for Knibby. Yeah. And what would you do without them? They save your life all the time, pretty much. Tis true. Tis true. So what's new with your life? Uh, Let me just pretend I'm interested. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Bev. <laughs> just kidding. Making me feel important I'm and validated. Kidding. You know I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I know I'm like your favorite person in the world. Yeah. Um... Well, I'm getting ready to go to a wedding on the weekend. Yes. Your good friend Camille's Yes. Wedding. And I just can't wait to see how beautiful she's going to look and just see the ceremony. Yeah, and I get to spend the night out of town, so that's pretty awesome. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. And you get to take your chances taking care of my dog. That's right. Better come back alive, Bev. Oh, crap. Pressure's on, isn't the it? Pressure's on. No, he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. He's going to see a lot of people see craig's parents he'll be happy he loves people he loves people 
this will be good for him. Yes, I'm excited. Okay, so today's a little bit different. Yes, it is. Miss Beverly. Me, that's me. She's going to read me, Becky, the story. Hell yeah, yeah. You're going to tell me something really cool, and I can't freaking wait. Okay. Shall we get into it, Becky? Absolutely. Okay, so our case sources for today are edmontonjournal.com, canadiancrimopedia.com, awnaves.medium.com, YouTube, True Crime Canada, Inside the Mark Twitchell Case, document.tips. Nice. Our first story takes place in 2008 and begins with a man named Gilles Tetreau. He had just moved to Edmonton, Alberta, and had recently started chatting with a beautiful young woman named Sheena on the dating website Plenty of Fish. On October 3rd of that year, he asked me what day it was. It's October 3rd. (laughs) (laughs) Mean Girls reference. Represent (laughs) the Mean Girls. Yeah. (laughs) It's such a good... It's such a good movie. Iconic. Iconic. Whoa! Did we just say iconic at the same time? We sure did. Okay. So on October 3rd of that year, Jill and Sheena decided to meet up at her place and go for dinner and a movie. Classic date. Sheena gave him directions to a house on the south side of Edmonton. To find Sheena's home, Jill had to turn into an alleyway and he would park in front of an open garage door. He got out of his car and made his way into the garage. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he was attacked with a stun baton. He was shocked multiple times across the back of his neck. He looked up to see a man towering over him. Beth, can we just like talk about how he had to drive into an alley and that's like what the directions were? It it already seems pretty sketchy. Yeah, it does. So anyways, the man was wearing a hockey mask. He sees this hockey mask man staring down at him and at that point it was pretty obvious to him that there was no date and Jill knew he was in trouble the masked man pulled out a gun and the two men had this intense stare down in a garage on the south side of Edmonton Jill was pushed to the ground and the attacker covered his eyes with duct tape Jill refused to stay on the ground he thought to himself if I die it won't be for my lack of trying so with that thought, he managed to rip the tape off his face and jump to his feet. That's right. He's fighting for his life. Absolutely he is. He got duct tape on his face. He's Stunned. got Jason from Friday the 13th staring at him. It's a weird scenario. So he managed to rip this tape off his face and he jumps to his feet. With a gun pointed at his face, fearing for his life, with no other options but to try and grab the gun from his attacker, Jill reached for the gun and began wrestling with his attacker to free the gun from the grips of the masked man. Mm-hmm. To Jill's relief and surprise, through the scrummage, he noticed that the gun was plastic. It was oh. a freaking toy, Becky. Frick yeah. That's great news. Oh my gosh, yeah. You think you're about to die with a loaded gun at your face? It's a plastic toy? Yeah. At this point... The masked man realized he could no longer use the gun to threaten Jill because they both knew it wasn't real. The man started hitting Jill. The momentum of his hits kept moving Jill closer to the garage door until he eventually was able to drop and roll under the semi-closed garage door. It wasn't until that moment Jill realized how badly the stun gun had affected him. 
he wasn't able to walk or run away. No. Yeah, he was forced to crawl down this alleyway, Becky. Ugh, you think you're about to get away? Be like, yes, I'm free out of this garage. And I was like, oh, my legs. It's like my worst fear realized right here. Actually, I used to have this reoccurring dream as a child where I was trying to run out of this burning house, our Dalhousie house. I'm like running, running. There's this attacker on the loose. I fall and I tell all of you guys, you and Axel and mom and dad, go, go on without me. I turn around to see this man towering over me and I wake up. Oh, that's horrifying. Yeah, but I feel like it's somewhat similar. Like you finally find a way out of this like life-threatening situation and you can't. You're debilitated. Yeah, you're debilitated. I had a similar dream, except when I'm running away, mm-hmm. it's like I feel like I'm putting my max effort into running, mm-hmm. and I cannot go any faster. It's just like I'm trying so hard, and I'm breathing So helpless, heavy. right? Yeah, and you're like, oh, why? Yeah, I'm trying so I'm trying hard. So hard. Oh. Oh, poor guy. Poor guy, yeah. So, of course, he hears the attacker approaching from behind him, and he feels him grab his legs and start pulling pulling him back to the garage. Jill gathered every ounce of strength he could at that moment and was able to stand up. As he did, he saw a random man and woman walking in the area. Yes. Jill screamed to them, this guy's trying to rob me and I need help. The couple were confused. Rightfully so. Yeah. I don't expect to see that. Exactly. And probably a little scared. Mm -hmm. They actually had thought that it might be some ploy to have them robbed or them Harmed. Instead of running to Jill's assistance, they went back home and called 911. Oh no, his like glimmer of hope mm-hmm. just slipping away. Exactly, but they never heard back and didn't hear anything on the news, so they had no idea what kind of forgot about it. Yeah. So, anyways, I know what you're thinking. Poor Jill. He gonna die? Oh, no. Becky, he got away. No, he, he did not. He got away. Oh my God, I didn't see that coming. His screams scared the masked man away. Oh, he probably retreated back to the garage because those people are there and he's like, I don't want them to see me. Exactly. Oh, I thank mean, God. Yeah. Saved his life. Those people, regardless if they like, the fact that they were just there saved his life. Yeah, I would say oh. it's probably smart to not go into that situation maybe and try and actually get physical with them because... You, you never, never know. know. You never know. Yeah. So, Jill lived. Frick yeah. Thank so God. So, that actually brings us now to our next story of another man named John Altinger. John was born on April 28, 1970. He actually grew up in both Edmonton and White Rock, British Columbia. This part of the story takes place when John was 38 years old. John was someone who made everyone around him feel comfortable He had a great sense of humor, and it was evident that he was an honest man. He was very tall, he loved motorbikes, drove a red hatchback, worked in quality control, liked Elton John, and computers. John was also someone who embraced the technological growth that occurred over, well, the years, and was known to spend a lot of his time online. There was a lot of growth then, like, we... We grew up in it. Yeah, like, that was right when I was graduating high school Mm -hmm. and I remember we had our flip phone we had to like hit each key like the triple like the triple hit the triple hit I like that you said that the triple hit anyone who was uh, alive and old enough in 2008 knows the triple hit yeah yeah scene took so long but man (laughs) we were efficient at it (laughs) so true my god 
So not only did John spend a lot of time online with friends chatting and playing multiplayer video games, but he was also looking for love. Hmm. To find it, he would frequent plenty of fish. POF. POF. POF is what they called it, right? You with your small little, like, <laughs> you're like, <laughs> you got the triple, triple hit, hit. POF. <laughs> but yes. And of course, as we know, this is not the first time we've heard this in this story. So mm. you can kind of guess See what where is this to come. is going. Mm-hmm. So when he was on Plenty of Fish, he connected with a woman named Jen. Mm. He was excited at the potential prospect of love. So on October 10th, 2008, John and Jen decided they would finally meet up. Ooh, love is in the air. Yes. And this is only a week later. Mm-hmm. A week. From the first incident with Jill that we talked about. So Jean is a smart man, and he told his friends where he was going. And actually, he emailed his friends with the directions to Jen's house that she had given him. Dang. Yeah. And just after 7 p.m. on October 10th, he sent a message to his friends telling them that he had arrived for his date. Brilliant. Just a few days later, John didn't show up to a biking trip he had planned with his friends and family on Thanksgiving weekend. And he was not the type of guy to just ditch plans without at least a phone call. If he said he would be somewhere, he meant it. And he would show up. So everyone he knew was rightfully really worried about him. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. No kidding. The next day, after not showing up for the bike ride, John's friends and family got an email from him that just didn't quite seem like the John they knew. Oh my god, what did it say? Well, it said he was going on a tropical vacation to Jen's home in Costa Rica and that he would call at Christmas. Oh yeah, that sounds like John. It sounds reasonable, right? Like Thanksgiving, <laughs> Christmas. See you in like two months. <laughs> what? Yeah, we'll see you in like almost like a quarter of a year. Bye. No big deal. Yeah. I'm just going to ditch on our biking trip that we planned. For a woman for I a met woman. one time. I mean, I've heard of some people maybe doing that, potentially. But is it the norm? Probably yeah. not. And for all accounts and purposes, it really doesn't seem like John yeah. is that type. No, he doesn't. So, of course, this email seemed very suspicious to everyone. So his friends start calling everyone they know from John's circle. When they called his work, they were told that he had not shown up for his shifts and hadn't told his employers that he would be away. And he hadn't gotten in contact with them at all to request days off uh, or anything. As if. As, as freaking if. if. I know. It just, anytime right. someone doesn't show up for their shifts, it's a clear indicator that something's afoot. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Every bonkers. documentary that I think I've ever seen, it starts with, and they didn't show up for work. You're like, mm, definitely murder. Uh, so, of course, this is when everyone starts to get a terrible feeling. He would never do that in a million years. So they went to the police. However, they were met with a nonchalant attitude and were told to wait and see. Like he's an adult. He can make his own decisions. Let him go off to Costa Rica. So his friends were not happy with this answer and they took it upon themselves to go to his apartment. Nice. His suitcase, passport, hygienic (sighs) items, and clothing were all there. It seemed as though John had every intention to return to his home. Yeah, so they know something is up. 
Yeah. Like the passport, like you actually need that to get yeah. out of the country. Literally can't leave without it. Suspicious. Mm-hmm. So his friends went back to the police with this information. And at that point, of course, the police couldn't deny yeah, they're that. Like, okay, you yeah. have a very valid point. Yeah, these circumstances are not normal let's look into it yeah it just took a Mm -hmm. present passport and an email of a supposed trip out of the country for them to be like oh something's different here something's not right you know at least they actually took the friend serious when they went and found that stuff though because they didn't necessarily have to they could have waited to see but they're like okay you're right absolutely undeniable we have to do something about it you're right It's true. And to be fair, I know a lot of investigators and police officers can't really look into something unless there's probable reason to. Like, I'm sure they have a ton of things on their plate to deal with. So Mm -hmm. anyways, either way, all this information information shot this case up to a priority, like about 10. Nice. Good. Yeah, it should. Exactly. So... Because John told his friends about his date, the investigators actually knew exactly where to start their investigation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, they had the address of John's last known whereabouts. Yes, they did, Bevy. Yes. Booyah. It's like, thank God. Just mm-hmm. another reminder for anyone, if you use the internet and dating websites, always tell someone where you're going. Exactly. Yeah. You never know. So the police got in touch with the renter of the garage. His name was Mark Twitchell, an aspiring filmmaker. He was using the garage to shoot a movie. Apparently, he had not seen John or his red Mazda hatchback. He also seemed confused that his rental space would be of interest to the police. However, he did seem very helpful and was willing to let the police tour the garage. So because of him being so willing to help the police actually did not suspect him Mm -hmm. when he let the police look around mark had noticed that the padlock on the garage looked as though it had been messed with and he made sure to mention that to the police well i would make sure that the police were aware could you imagine renting a garage and showing up and be like hey why is my padlock all jacked up and the police are like looking into it for like a murder or disappearance i guess yeah. You'd be like, holy shit. Yeah, my padlock's messed up. Yeah, your innocent mind would think that, Rebecca. But on the other side of the coin, he could be leading the police investigators. Yes, he could. Later that day, Mark randomly mentioned to the police that he had forgotten to tell them that he had just bought a new car. And it just so happened to be the same make model and color of john's car no shut up get out of here coincidence no i (laughs) just just no (laughs) absolutely not okay so my theory about the padlock i canceled my theory (laughs) out i'm dead wrong he was leading those guys freaking liar oh my gosh how dare criminals be liars (laughs) yeah how dare they how dare they (laughs) So this new information, of course, made Detective Bill Clark take notice of Mark. Mm -hmm. What a a rhyme. (laughs) Detective Bill Clark take notice of Mark. How'd you get that out in one proper swoop? I don't know. Good for you. I even made a little rap. How was that for skill? 
<laughs> Top notch, Bev. Like, <laughs> swish. Sorry, what career are you in? <laughs> Not the right one. Not the right we one. We got a rapper over here. Woo! <laughs> okay, so let's give a little background on Mark since he seems to be one of the prime suspects after his little revelation of buying a car that was the same exact car as John. Yeah, let's hear about freaking Mark. So Mark Twitchell was a kind, fun-loving guy. He had attended Nate in Edmonton, Alberta, and in 2000, he graduated from the radio and television art program. The following year, he was married. Hmm. However, he was unfaithful several times in his marriage, and his wife said he was a compulsive liar. Shocking! Mm-hmm. He would lie to her about anything. One example she gave was he would tell her he paid a bill and a month later she would get the overdue bill in the mail. So just lying about anything. Random shit, right? Ugh, it's like annoying. Annoying is right. Who wants to be married to that? Poor, poor wife. Yes, no doubt. So he spent a lot of time online in chat rooms where he created weird identities and would act out the f- fantasies that came along with them. Oh. One of his favorites was a character from the TV series Dexter. What? Yes. So anyone who doesn't know, this is a show based on a forensic expert who is also... Murderer. Yeah, he's a serial killer. Oh my gosh. So the couple's marriage ended after a few years, but it was not long before Mark was back on the horse and married again. He had his first child during his new marriage... But Mark's deceit continued. Oh, of course it did. He even bought his family a house with forged documents. No. To get the mortgage. Oh my God. What a freaking terrible human. Right? Like, why would you do that to your wife? I know. I'm thinking it from the wife's perspective. That's just such a betrayal because what happens when the bank or what have you finds out that the documents to get a mortgage were forged? I wonder. Yeah, like, do they just take the house? Do you get... I assume you did something horrible or so unethical that they would just take that house away, kick you to the curb, probably get arrested, Mm -hmm. and you would then have no equity in that home. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so backtrack one year in 2007, Mark's dreams to become a filmmaker became real as he directed a full-length sci-fi fan film prequel called star wars secret of rebellion what really yes wow he actually somehow got jeremy bullock the actor who did boba fett in the original star wars movies to do a cameo but oh the sci-fi film was never released so upon his broken dreams with Mm. that he actually went on to write a comedy And then he made his own horror movie called House of Cards, which was shot in the same garage the police had looked at in the south of Edmonton. What? Mm Mm-hmm. So while making the scary movie, he was living off of his investor's money as he had quit his job without telling his wife. Classic. And to actually hide it from his wife, he made up this elaborate scheme of leaving the home, going for drives so he could work on the movie and 
continue to lie without any repercussion. Oh my gosh. Like she thought he was working that whole time? Yeah. Oh. And he would just leave the house and go for drives to make it look like he had a normal job. How are you going to maintain that? Like your investor's money is only going to last you so long. I know. Delusional. Delusional. Yeah. And rude. So now we fast forward to 2008. And at this point, John had been missing for about two weeks. So, of course, the police have pleaded with the public for their help. And the couple who had witnessed a man pleading for help in the alleyway with a hockey masked man chasing him just weeks earlier got called in for questioning. So in the interview, the couple said they had been freaking out after hearing that a man went missing in the same area that they had witnessed a man screaming at them for help. Mm. And of course, they had just thought that they left someone to die. However... It soon became clear to the police that the person the couple saw who had pleaded for help was not the missing person, John. So, of Mm. course, we know that it was Jill that was pleading for his life, and Jean is the one that's missing. However, both of those instances were in the exact same location. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. I mean, if alarm bells are not going off for those police about Mark Twitchell... Yeah. I think they are now. Exactly. So after talking to the couple, police didn't know who to talk about, about the incident where the man was pleading for his life because it wasn't John. So it was some unknown man. Oh, he never went to the police? He never went to the police. Why not? Yeah, Jill didn't go to the police. Never spoke to them, never called them after the attack because he was scared. Made no report. He was scared because, get this, after the attack, Jill had gotten a threatening message on the dating site from a profile of the man who had just tried to kill him saying that he had his IP address, knew where he lived, and if he went to the police, he would... There was consequences. There was consequences. So he threatened him. So from that point forward, Jill was always watching his back and too afraid to, of course, report the attack. Uh, Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Okay. He has good reason. But now the police know that there is two attacks out there. Oh my God. Yeah, know that some random person is out there that was attacked in the same area a man went missing. So after learning this the police made a public plea for this man to come forward to help with the disappearance of john it took jill a whole month to come forward because of course he was so fearful right oh yeah so a long time it's a long time a month you're like oh but i get it i get it he's scared yeah Mm -hmm. he was almost killed and threatened so makes sense so after detectives heard what he went through they thought they probably should talk to mark again Mm-hmm. Mark uh, yep. willingly came into the police station for a second time where Detective Clark, a seasoned investigator, got to question him. The detective first asked about the red Mazda and how it came in, into his possession. His story is bogus. Ooh. <laughs> he told Detective Clark that he bought it from someone off the street saying a guy had come up what? to him. Bev, off the street? Off the street. No. <laughs> Wait till you hear what he says, the reason he says. 
a guy had come up to him asking if he wanted to buy a car because he had gotten together with a really rich lady, a sugar mama type, and she was going to buy him a nice new car when they got back from vacation. So because his sugar mama was going to buy him a brand new car, he was just going to Sell his Mazda. Sell his Mazda. That's the story he gave. Some guy on the street. Some guy on the street. Randomly. Just so imagined. Be like, actually, yes, I will buy that Mazda from you. That's fabulous. I'm glad your fortunate circumstances are going to get me a new car. Yeah. What a ding dong. (laughs) Yeah, what a ding dong. Also, Bev. Yeah? Does that story not sound like the email from John earlier that he sent to his family? I met a woman... She's taking me to Costa Rica. I'll see you at Christmas. Yeah, see you at Christmas or talk to you at Christmas. Like, doesn't that almost sound a little familiar? Yeah, it's like they both met these women who are treating them, right? Yeah. And taking them on vacation. Yeah, it does sound familiar. I never Mm. thought of that, Becky. Mm -hmm. Great point. You're welcome. Get some new material, Mark. (laughs) God. So, of course, at this point, the detective left the interview room and he thought, holy crap. He killed him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we had that, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. like, uh... That's a dumb freaking story. <laughs> of course he killed him. Sounds made up. Yeah. Liar. <laughs> However, at this point, the detectives did not have sufficient evidence or a body to arrest him or hold him any longer. So as the interview was wrapping up, Detective Clark says to Mark, you're not going to be able to live with yourself the rest of your life. To which Mark responds... You'd be surprised with what I can live with. <gasps> Whoa. Who says that? Who says that? Only a guilty like, person. Yeah, only a guilty person. It's like, well, we already know you're a freaking liar. Yeah. The t- the detective is probably just has like a list be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Checking that one off the list. Murderer would say that. Yep. This sounds like you killed Sketchy them. story. Yep. Two people attacked or missing in front of your garage Hmm. things are adding up very quickly yes after mark leaves the police know that he has something to do with the disappearance of john so they ended up getting proper search warrants and sent the forensic crew to search his house the garage and his vehicles yeah they collected in their search a variety of movie props and other items such as clothing weapons handcuffs tape laptops and receipts they found what looked to be reminder notes in mark's car that said destroy wallet contents ship ebay items and clean sweep of the kill room is he just a little dumb he obviously thought he would never get caught yeah like i had a huge ego i swear he thinks he's so smart and he's like oh yeah I'm getting away with this. I'm just so freaking I have great. a kill room. Look at all these Come notes reminding it. me. They'll never know. Yeah, I have a list. But he's freaking dumb. Like, it's it's literally been weak. They've had so much time, and yet they still found those in your car. Like, uh, was that not the first? Maybe you should have written yourself a note. Be like, get rid of notes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just. Way to go, dumb dumb. He has such a big ego. Like, he really is so arrogant. He feels like he's not going to get caught. I helped them. I told them about the messed up padlock on my garage. I'm willing. They'll never know. I'm Dexter. You know? I'm so clever. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, what a guy. Holy shit. So the police used... Luminol. Luminol, Becky. Yes, they did. They used luminol in the garage, and it lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, God. Large patches lit up on the floor and on the door. Two days after that interview with Detective Clark, they found a deleted document on Mark's laptop titled SK Confessions. I it love w- deleted documents. Oh, oh they're so great because you know, you're like, haha, I found what you didn't want me to see, you knucklehead. So get this. It will not disappoint you yes. in terms of deleted documents. It was a manuscript in Mark's own writing about how he became a serial killer and his progression to committing these crimes. And this is what the police found? Yes. Oh my God. So he actually wrote about his encounter with Jill in amazing detail that had matched what Jill had told the police. Oh God. Does this, sorry. I think the question should be as like, did he want to get caught? Does no, he, he didn't. He wanted to anything? become a serial killer. And as of right now, we only know of one person that could potentially be dead. Because Jill didn't die. Thank goodness, by the way. Thank goodness. So a little bit later in the document, he writes about the crime he commits against John as well. He actually wrote step by step how he killed, dismembered, and disposed of his body. In his writings, Mark refers to John as Jim, but all the details match John to a T. So I'm going to tell you a quote from this document. He wrote, I sang to myself as I worked and talked to myself, reflecting on the new tools I would get to make the next one easier. There was also another deleted document that they found titled A Profile of a Psychopath. It was an in-depth analysis of Mark including his personality and behavior disorders. However, this was not used as evidence as the police thought it could potentially compromise the inevitable trial that would be coming. I guess that makes sense because you say it's like about his personality and... Well, also, you, they said it's about his behavior disorders as well. And it's a self... Self-analysis. Yeah. So he could... Like, it has no basis, right? Yeah, he could skew it in any direction or... Yeah, it could it, lead the jury. It can be real, right? Exactly. So, so I get why they didn't include it as evidence. 100%. But what the hell? Who does that? It's a weird thing to do. He was obviously, like, again, so arrogant and so egotistical. Like, he wants to just, like, write all about himself. All right. So they found John's blood inside the trunk of the car. The oh. only thing they were missing was the body. Unfortunately, Mark refused to tell them where he had left John, although it didn't really matter because they had more than enough evidence to bring him to trial. Right. Yeah. And so in a turn of events, nine months later, detectives got a call saying Mark needed to talk to them. Hmm. The meeting lasted no more than three minutes. Mark's lawyers were with him when he handed detectives a piece of paper. It was a printout of Google Maps with handwritten directions to a sewer where he had disposed of John's body. What? Talk no way. Disrespectful. But in a sewer, yeah. no less. Like, oh, I just think that's, that's just sad. nasty. It's sad. It's like you killed this man, took him away from his friends and family and loved ones, and then to top it off, you dumped him in, like, a sewer. A sewer with shit and piss and nasty crap. Like, it's You are just a terrible human. Terrible human. God. I guess he thought no one would ever search there. I mean, he ain't wrong. 
And also, like, why do it nine months later? Truth be told, I have no idea. It's weird. So on October 31st, 2008, a little less than a month after he had attacked Jill and killed John, he was arrested for the murder of John Atlinger. Good. Almost three years after his arrest in March of 2011, Twitchell took the stand on his own behalf. He said he lured the two men to his garage to get publicity for his movie. Oh, yeah, freaking right. Yeah. Okay, Mark. Yeah. So his, his reasoning is he believed that once they left, they would go and tell everyone about it by word of mouth. However, the encounters went south when John attacked him and he had to act in self-defense. He addressed the apparent confessions from the documents on his laptops. They weren't confessions, rather fictional stories that he wrote. This fucking guy. This fucking guy. Like, and like, if, if it really was to get publicity, then Jill should have been enough because he got away, right? And also, then why threaten him not to say anything? Yeah, exactly. Like, you so are, true. You're contradicting yourself here there, uh, Mark. I have the portion of the manuscript about John's death that I'm going to read to you. Lay it on me. Okay. I need to hear this. All right. The room filled with the echo of the pipe crashing into the back of his skull as I could feel my predator self take over. That one single motion was the end-all be-all. I had committed now, and there was no going back. The jig was up, and it was kill or get arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Maybe even attempted murder. I won't go to jail for an almost. But the son of a didn't drop like the sack of potatoes I was expecting. Are you serious? I asked myself. I continued whacking Jim over the head repeatedly, but it only seemed to fuel his adrenaline too. He began screaming at the top of his lungs, police, 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 and I just about shit my pants. My fury doubled and I blasted him so hard blood splattered everywhere, but primarily on me. He hit the floor but was still conscious, just like they all do. He offered money immediately. I always find this a little degrading for both my victim and myself. Like I couldn't just kill them and take it anyway. No, please, Mr. Victim. Give me some petty cash for your wallet and run along to the cops only to leave them back here? Ridiculous. I paused for a minute. You promise? I said. And Jim said, yes, please just stop hitting me. Oh, my skull, was his reply. And then in an instant, he had to think about it. I wailed on him again. Despite receiving several more blows to the head, the shock and adrenaline of the situation gave him the fire to fight back a little. I've had enough of this, he said as he feebly and easily tried to grab the pipe away from me. My anger resurged. I wrestled it from him and that was the last straw for me. I pulled my hunting knife from its sheath and watched the shock on his face as he saw the blade. I thrust it into his gut. His reaction was pure Hollywood. The lurch forward with the grunt was on TV movie of the week. I didn't even notice the garage door was still partly open. Wasn't I supposed to close that? Will I never learn? No one came. No one wrestled, not even from across the alley. My little notices that I sent out to the neighbors about shooting thrillers here did their job, and no one paid attention, assuming it was a scene or something. Oh, it was a scene, all right. Jim moaned and groaned. I plunged the knife deep into his neck. Days after the event, I would reflect on this and wish I had tricked him by offering to call an ambulance if he had just gave me his debit pin code before I sliced open his jugular. 
Maybe I'll save that for the next victim since they never seem to just fall the f asleep like they're supposed to. I let him bleed out right there on the floor, away from the plastic sheeting specifically put up to avoid that sort of thing. But hey, I had bigger problems. I had no real idea if a jogger, a dog walker, an unconvinced neighbor, neighbor or some other random individual had actually called the cops just as a precaution. I was standing there covered in blood. It was all over my face, my hoodie, my coat, and my jeans. I was holding the murder weapon in my hand, standing over what would be in moments of corpse not nearly enough time to make it go away. The guy was at least two inches taller than I was, maybe a couple pounds heavier, and I'm no shrimp. But I got his dead carcass up on that table, and I figured that since I went through all this trouble and made all this mess, that I would have to clean it up. I got my game processing kit out, which contained a butcher's knife for the hefty meat, a fillet knife for smaller works, a skinner, which might come in handy for scalping the skull, and a serrated saw for the bones. A pair of scissors there was also, and a cutting board. I decided the best course, which would be to go from the feet up. First things first, I pulled out his wallet and keys and placed them on my computer table. Then I used the scissors to cut his pants apart, pull them away. I had my 45-gallon steel drum host to a contractor grade. Hefty bag bros put in all items inside. And that's where I'm going to end it. But wow, what a sicko. Like he enjoyed, well, I don't know how many of them, in, like serial killers or murderers enjoy it. But he was like, yeah, this is awesome. Like this is what I'm going to do differently on my next one. Like he's such a psycho. It is sad. It's like he's so obsessed with the movie. He's like, maybe they think, like, he's like, they're going to think it's a scene from a movie from my, because of what I told them. And honestly, he wanted to taunt John, you know, by being like, oh, next time I'm going to tell him I'm going to accept his offer for cash. Yeah. And then I'm going to kill him. Like, it's just like, he's like, I'm going to hang on by a thread have him have hope for as long as yeah. I can that enjoyment is what gets me it's gross yeah it is the worst kind of like killer be like haha I can laugh about parts of this and watching you have hope and struggle through this and mm-hmm. like know you're close to death that I can find humor in this yeah yeah that's that is fucked up that is fucked up if you were to read that you would think it is a horror story you really would and that's like the worst fucking part is like he used his real life experience to make this manuscript Mm -hmm. but it was so descriptive Mm -hmm. and you almost forget that you're like this is real you forget when it's reading because it's just so descriptive and that yeah you just forget and are just like engulfed in it yeah and then after you finish reading it you're like wait a second that happened to somebody yeah that was a real story like, yeah. it's so messed up to think. That's what's so, like, that's it's kind of a mind fuck yeah. because of it. He's like a predator. He's like, like, he is a quintessential predator. He preyed on them to get them to his home. He lured them. He lured them. And then when he's there, he's taking pleasure out of, you know, taunting them and giving them hope where there is none. And then it seems like he also gets pleasure out of what he's going to do after to the body. Like, he's laying out all these materials that he needs do you know what i mean he's almost like pumping up his ego like yeah i lifted him on this i did that like even though he's he's bigger than me i still did it 
yeah, he's a very sick human being, and it's a very interesting insight into the mind of a potential serial killer or someone who has serial killer instincts, that instinct to kill, kill, kill. Mm -hmm. It's weird to get a kind of a look into what they were thinking at the time because it is really... It gets in-depth. And it's scary. It is. You know? That's why why people are scared to get caught by someone like this because it's like they don't have that remorse. They don't give a crap about your pleas for help. Yeah, like Like, there's nothing that John could have said no to save his life it was like his as, pleas actually angered him yeah and as long as mark didn't basically fuck up so he could run away that guy like his life was no longer yeah you know totally what a, what a turd i know so i know that was pretty heavy but we're gonna talk about some justice Yes. Here. So a month after Twitchell took the stand on April 12th, 2011, the jury called bullshit and found him guilty of first degree murder. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Mark was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for at least 25 years. Mm. They were initially going to charge Mark for an attempted murder for Jill, but those charges were ultimately dropped. Bummer. Bummer, but at the same time, like, he will go to prison for the rest of his life. And I don't know if they have any concrete evidence to trial, put him on trial for Jill's attack. Yeah. Like. He, I mean, like, it is hard because he didn't go to the police right away. So they couldn't yeah. document injuries. Mm-hmm. It would just be harder to try, I think. Yeah, I hear that. So Mark Twitchell is currently residing at the Saskatchewan Federal Penitentiary. He was not allowed to be interviewed, but he keeps in regular contact with journalists and bloggers claiming he was wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. But you were. Yeah, ludicrous, right? How does he figure? How does he? Well, I'll tell you. He tried to appeal his conviction claiming there was an intense media coverage during and after his trial so mark believes in his twisted way that there is no way the jury wasn't influenced by the media and therefore thinks he didn't get a fair trial however there was no media coverage allowed before the trial and documents had been sealed so he could have a fair trial he's just reaching now it was the evidence outlined in your trial that convinced the jury dude your manuscript okay your detailing of the crime mm-hmm. there was ample evidence bro there was like undeniable undeniable Ugh, i hate him so i know and then Ugh. he also believes that his guilty verdict was determined because of mistakes made by literally everyone but him his lawyer the judge the jury detectives and anyone who could have had a hand in his trial were to blame yeah it wasn't your manuscript or those dumb notes in your car and or the, the blood having in your- john's car in your possession yeah none of that got you guilty so his appeal was denied Justice was served, and he will be in prison for quite a while still. And it is said that he has saved up to buy himself a TV to watch the episodes of Dexter he missed during his trial. (laughs) Wow. Because I didn't get enough. Well, thank God they caught the bastard. Amen. Amen, sister. Well, Bev, thanks for sharing that with me. It's nice to be on the receiving end of this. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for listening, Beck. 